Okay, so we had started on this chapter on uh, sexual orientation um, last week uh, and looked at um, some things related to sexual orientation, including um, uh, things related to definitions, uh, things related to terminology, uh, overall prevalence. And then we had started talking about uh, origins of sexual orientation. Um, uh, but we only looked at one part of origins. Um, <clears throat> I'll remind you of a few um uh, essentially conclusions <laughs> that we'll come to in looking at uh, sexual orientation. Um, uh, if we go back to um, slide number nine, uh, that um, uh, what comes together to lead to somebody's sexual orientation is going to be some kind of combination of biological, psychological, sociocultural influences. Um, there isn't a single cause that we can point to for any uh, uh, for sexual orientation or for any one uh, type of sexual orientation. Um, the other thing that um, is difficult about uh, what research we have here is that a lot of the research um, is on male homosexuals and it's not on, and it doesn't really generalize to um, female homosexuals uh, very well. There's um, there's uh, a lack of research data on a lot of this sort of stuff. Um, but let's see. So last time we just talked about some of the um, psychosocial kinds of uh uh, theories regarding sexual orientation, psychodynamic explanation, which is pretty unsatisfying, <laughs> um, and then uh, social learning theory, which makes sense, but it's not really supported by research either, mostly in, um, uh, you know, in some of the um, observations of uh, how common homosexual sexual orientations are across cultures, even though different cultures are liable to have very different kinds of uh, views towards um, uh, homosexuals and homosexual behaviors. Um, the um, the incidence of, that doesn't seem to affect the overall incidence of homosexuality. There's some other things too that, um, that underlie or that belie that uh, um, social learning theory, um, you know, um, and some of it comes from uh, the experiences of lesbians. Many lesbians have had um, uh, sex with men prior to, have had satisfying sex with men uh, prior to identifying as lesbian. Uh, that would seem to not make a whole lot of sense according to social learning theory, but, you know, who knows. Um, if we move uh, next, what we pick up with um, today really is the um, uh, biological side of the uh, coin, essentially um, uh, biological explanations of sexual orientation. And I don't know, um, I, I want to stop for a minute and say why this is important. Um, uh, you may be thinking, well, you know, so what? So what? Uh, if we know what causes somebody's sexual orientation. Um, it, it does uh, impact people's lives a lot because um, um, the way that other people uh, understand the causes of things is often going to um, uh, determine whether or not those other people are accepting or judgmental or whatever, right? Uh, I'll just point out that um, even within uh, my lifespan, I saw uh, earlier when I was younger that, um, that people uh, wanted to talk about um, homosexuality in particular uh, as and saying that it was a lifestyle choice, that it was a lifestyle choice. That was kind of the phrase. You don't hear that anymore because I think that sort of backfired. Uh, I think that um, essentially that um, made it so that it sounded like uh, gay people were essentially uh, uh, opting for homosexuality of their own free will, in a sense, uh, completely free choice, um, and um, and that's probably not really the experience of people, um, but it also um, uh, leaves the possibility that if 
if uh, if I can choose that sexual lifestyle, then someone else can choose to think it's wrong or choose to not like me because of it or to reject me because of it. Um, and so then, um, then uh, the pendulum started to swing the other way where people started to talk about sexual orientation as being entirely uh, biological, you know, the just born this way uh, kind of thing. That's actually not true either, um, uh, that it's not entirely biological. We do probably now know more about the biological side of it, um, but when it comes right down to it, um, the biological uh, side of sexual orientation, we can only account for about 50 to 60% of the causes of sexual orientation from um, biology. That still leaves 40 to 50%. Uh, that's not biology, whether that's uh, random chance or whether that's uh, free choice or whether that's the way that you're raised or what. You know, there's still a lot we don't know about that. Um, and, uh, and frankly, uh, right now, I don't think there's a lot of research, uh, that's looking into that. Um, uh, but, um, uh, let's see, um, let's, let's, let's look at what we know from, um, biological explanations. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, let's see, um, uh, as far as genetics are concerned, uh, picking up here on slide number 12, um, <clears throat> If we look at um, genetic research, they're going to tend to look at concordance rates in twins uh, and generally comparing sets of identical twins or monozygotic MZ twins to sets of dizygotic twins. Now, the reason that that, that kind of uh, study is done a lot in looking at genetic contributions to things is because monozygotic twins have exactly the same genetic makeup, identical twins. Dizygotic twins don't. Uh, dizygotic twins are no more uh, genetically related to one another than other sets of regular brothers and sisters or whatever, right? Um, other siblings, other first degree uh, uh, siblings. Um, <clears throat> however, um, uh, dizygotic twins make a really nice comparison group because they're often, well, they're born at about the same time and they're often raised in very similar kinds of environments to one another. Uh, so they're going to be, so their, their environment is going to be more similar to one another uh, than it might be for other sets of brothers and sisters who might have been um, born, you know, years apart and different kinds of family situation, and the family situation has changed some or whatever. Anyway, so, um, <clears throat> So uh, there have been concordance rates uh, reported as high in a study in 1952 of 100%. Um, that's, uh, that's not regarded as reliable. Um, it hasn't been found to be that high. But you may hear that. You may hear that, um, uh, that um, uh, homosexuality has been found to be 100% genetic. And if you do, they're probably pulling from, um, from that study or something around it in 1952. And, um, and that study hasn't been replicated. There have been uh, a lot of other studies that found quite a bit lower, still significantly high, but quite a bit lower uh, concordance rates. Uh, so for example, um, for boys, uh, for brothers, 52% uh, concordance in um, homosexuality uh, uh, in a study in 1991. For girls, 48% uh, concordance, um, uh, also in a study in 1991. Um, and uh, so those... Um, Concordance rates for monozygotic twins uh, usually uh, come pretty close to or approximate the, um, the overall heritability estimate uh, for um, a particular uh, trait or condition or um, whatever it is that we're talking about uh, genetically. Um, and so it's looking like it's somewhere right around 50% there. Um, 
there's certainly more to this research, but I don't know that we necessarily need to get into all the details about it. Um, uh, other kinds of things are um, that um, other studies have found that, uh, if I go to the next slide, 13, um, gay men are much more likely than straight men to have a close relative who's gay. Um, so this is sort of the it seems to run in families kind of thing. Um, uh, again, when we're looking at running in families, that's a little bit more vague than saying something is strictly speaking genetic, right? Because running in families could mean it's genetic, could mean it's um, uh, fostered in the family in some way or, or, um, or um, uh, similar kind of environmental situations. Anyway, um, there have been a lot of studies that looked at this, and um, in a pretty extensive review in 2003 by Raman and Wilson, um, they estimated the, the uh, heritability of um, sexual orientation as 50 to 60 percent, um, 50 to 60 percent genetic. Um, I want to be clear there, that's not saying that um, homosexuality is 50 to 60 percent, but all sexual orientation, all of us, our sexual orientation would be uh, 50 to 60 percent determined by our genetics. With the other, you know, still considerable uh, proportion of that, 40 to 50 percent, being something else. There, um, <coughs> excuse me, uh, um, let's see, um, there are uh, if we go to slide number 14, there are a number of studies that have tried to look for biological markers of sexual orientation. Uh, and the, um, the, the logic here is that if sexual orientation is something that is inherited and biological, it probably doesn't just come by itself. It probably comes with other kinds of things too uh, that might be systematically different in people of different sexual orientations. So that's what they kind of mean by a biological marker, uh, something else that would be consistently different uh, in people of different sexual orientations. Um, so uh, so some of this has looked at brain structure. Mm. Remember when, when we talked about uh, brain structure in the last chapter on gender, that the differences, the um, the morphological uh, differences between male and female brains are really not that great. Uh, they're very small, um, and they'll come down to minor differences in the hypothalamus, maybe some things about uh, cerebral symmetry uh, or, um, or asymmetry, uh, but, um, but they're pretty subtle. There have been studies to indicate that, um, that lesbians are more likely to have brain patterns morphologically, that is, uh, on their shape, uh, to more similar to heterosexual men and gay men having uh, brain morphologies more similar to heterosexual women. I don't know if I'd put too much into that, um, uh, just because you know those um, the sizes of brain parts and stuff is not always the most important thing for understanding brain parts, but it's something, right? It's something that says that um, that there may be some other biological markers here. Uh, if we go to slide 15, um, there's also some um, uh, another interesting line of research on birth order. Uh, this is fascinating, and um, and it's a little bit more complex than it might look at first. So try to follow me on this. Uh, let's see. Um, essentially, what um, what they found was that um, gay men were more likely to have more older brothers than straight men. Uh, so that it seemed that each additional older brother that a person, that a boy has, increases the likelihood that that boy is going to be gay. Um, now, uh, this was, um, uh, they did this, they did this research, um, 
very well, I think, and um, removed a lot of other possible confounding f- variables so that it wasn't just having other boys in the household, because if there were other adoptive brothers or other things like that, that didn't affect it. It was only if it was a biological older brother. A uh, number of sisters had no impact, uh, whether they were biological sisters or adoptive sisters or anything like that. So essentially, they ruled out a lot of kinds of external environmental influences. And what it comes down to is that um, the hypothesis is that something about um, uh, growing up in a womb that has already been occupied by male children um, uh predisposes uh, a male to become to be more likely to be gay. Uh, there may be some kind of hormonal influences here. It may be something about, well, the, I think the hypothesis is that it's something about the mother's um, body's immune system response to a male child, in a sense, or even to uh, androgens, uh, so that it's um, affecting um, levels of uh, testosterone or other androgens while the later child is um, is still in utero, which is kind of interesting. Now, um, I got to be clear about this um, statistic of uh, 33%. Uh, notice the way this is phrased. Each additional biological older brother increases the probability that the younger brother will be homosexual by about 33%. Now, um, this doesn't mean that he's, you know, Oh well, let's see. Um, uh, essentially, this is this is an example of relative risk, not absolute risk. And so, what that means is that you know, if we start off with an absolute risk, if we want to call it that, uh, of a male being gay at something like I don't know what is it in the population? We said like four percent, maybe. Um, then, um, then for the uh, for the next biological uh, younger brother, it's four percent plus 33% of 4%. So it's increasing by a third each time. So that's going to be five and a third percent. I don't know. Um, and then a third up each time. So it's, I mean, it's not as huge and dramatic as it sounds when you say 33% uh, increase because it's relative risk, but it's something, right? Um, now this, um, this, of course, uh, uh, while it's interesting, uh, it, it could only be a fairly small influence. Um, there are a lot of, certainly a lot of families uh, where uh, youngest brothers aren't gay. Uh, in my family, the oldest brother's gay. <laughs> and the uh, youngest, the younger of us are straight. So I don't know, it does, certainly doesn't fit um, uh, my family, but, um, uh, but this is an interesting kind of finding. Um, <clears throat> When we look at uh, other kinds of biological explanations, if we move to slide number 16, um, people have looked at the impact of hormones. Um, And essentially uh, what it comes down to is that um, there don't seem to be any hormonal influences, at least when you're an adult. If there are hormonal influences on sexual orientation, those would have been something that would have happened very early in development. Because when it comes right down to it, um, there are no measurable differences in adult levels of sex hormones uh, in people who are straight or people who are gay or whatever. They thought of that, right? People thought of that a while ago. They thought, well, maybe gay men just don't have enough testosterone. <laughs> and um, so if we um, measure their testosterone, we'll find that it's lower. And it wasn't. It was, uh, it was the same as straight men. Uh, and so um, uh, manipulating um, sex uh, hormones, uh, particularly testosterone, um, is not going to change sexual orientation. Um, I guess it's natural that people would have thought of that, but they were able to rule that idea out pretty quickly, I think. Um, 
sometimes in the context of talking about uh, sexual orientation, people will bring up that um, same-sex sex behavior is common in the animal kingdom, that other non-human animals uh, engage in same-sex kind of uh, behavior. Um, I don't know that if I were arguing for it, this would be a line of uh, argument that I would pursue. Um, uh, I guess, you know, it can help people to feel like, you know, this isn't something that's completely unusual for human beings. Uh, but um, but comparing human behavior to animal behavior is often a, a pretty big jump. I mean, uh, you know, we've got um, we've got animals, you know, who eat their own young. <laughs> um, we've got animals who, you know, do all sorts of things that we wouldn't say is okay for humans. So I don't know if, you know, that's necessarily a good parallel. Uh, it might be, um, it might tell us something, but, um, but I don't know that it's a really good one to try to convince people. Um, we do see, uh, you certainly do see same sex sex behavior in animals. Although a lot of times that's related to displays of dominance. Um, uh, you might've seen this with dogs. I mean, we all, uh, uh, I've seen dogs mount other dogs, and most of our dogs now are are um, spayed and neutered. Um, and so, you know, uh, female, what would it be spayed, female dogs, um, you know, mounting uh, neutered male dogs, and you know, or or vice versa, or whatever. And um, and so, all this stuff is uh, is not so much about sex or even sexual motivation, but um, but displays of social dominance uh, and things like that. Um, there also have been, you know, some recorded incidences of uh, what appear to be same sex sex behaviors, or even same sex bond uh, uh, pair bonding, um, uh, but that's often been in with a lack of other sex partners. Um, uh, so that, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of what it was. Oh, there were penguins, uh, penguins in a zoo in, um, uh, New York city, I think, I don't know. Um, and, uh, the, it seemed that, uh, two male penguins adopted, uh, an egg and raised it as their own. And there was a children's book written about it. It was called, and tango makes three, uh, tango was what they ended up naming, the um uh the baby uh, well that's what the humans named the baby i don't know what the penguins named the baby well, it's a big penguin um but um but anyway so they so they named him tango um uh and so this was you know kind of a cute and endearing story about a gay couple of penguins right um uh, after the book came out uh the um the the zoo got uh some more penguins in uh and moved them into the penguin enclosure. And that same-sex male couple quickly broke up when there were other females, when there were female uh, partners now available. Um, so, you know, it's not really clear that um, that, that, was, that, uh, that the same-sex pair bonding was their choice. It may have been more situational because there weren't as many other sex partners available. Eh, so anyway, um, I'd kind of be careful with the uh, comparisons to non-human animals. Um, uh, for hormones, though, um, if hormones do have any role in uh, influencing sexual orientation, it's probably going to be related to uh, prenatal exposure, uh, such that um, uh, exposure to levels of hormones, sex hormones, whether that be estrogen or testosterone, while the person is still in utero, may make some other kinds of changes in the brain. We saw some similar kinds of things when we looked at gender, if you recall, that um, um, 
uh, androgen insensitivity syndrome and adrenogenital syndrome uh, involved hormonal influences uh, that you know made quite a bit of a difference in um, uh, in the development of the person's brain from early on. Um, <clears throat> there's um there's an interesting line of research on finger length. Um, uh, as a possible uh, biological marker related to um, uh, sexual orientation. And um, what this is, is the uh, second digit, uh, the ratio of the second digit to the fourth digit. Okay. Um, so I can't show you my hand, but you know what a hand looks like. You've probably got a few. Uh, let's see. Uh, your thumb is digit one. Uh, pointer is digit two. Uh, longest finger is digit three. Uh, four is your ring finger, and five is your little pinky finger. Um, so, so your pointer finger, your index finger, to your ring finger, that's the 2D to 4D ratio. And let's see, I kind of forget how this goes. Uh, I think it is that, um, the, that in um, women, the 2D to 4D ratio is usually pretty small or absent, that those, those fingers are about the same length. Uh, in men, the um, fourth digit is uh, is significantly longer than the second digit than the index finger. Um, <clears throat> uh, now, what does this have to do with sexual orientation? Nobody really knows. However, what they find is that um, uh, while there is often, not always, but often this sex difference, um, that sex difference also shows up, that sex difference shows up differently in lesbians and gay men. Uh, that um, that lesbians are more likely to have the male pattern in finger length. Um, uh, gay men may be more likely to have the female pattern in finger length. What uh, again? What this would have to do with sexual orientation isn't really clear. Uh, the hypothesis is that um, that those fingers, or maybe it's just the ring finger, uh, is growing or developing. Just happens to be right at the time when um, uh, when there would be that exposure to sex hormones that might be changing something in the brain. So it might just be kind of a random side effect of uh, of different levels of sex hormones. Um, if um, if your hands don't match up to those uh, uh, ratios, don't worry. It doesn't mean anything. This is not. Um, uh, uh, this doesn't. Uh, this is definitely not a hundred percent predictor of sexual orientation. Um, uh, but um, uh, but in large scale samples, they do find that um, that people do show some um, trends in the differences. But that doesn't necessarily apply to every single person. Let's see. Um, so if we go to slide number seventeen to summarize, this is you know I started uh, this section with the with the conclusions, um, and so really this is just to remind you of where we've come through this that um, that we don't come down to a single cause for sexual orientation. Um, you know, people may want to say that you're born with it, it's entirely born, inborn, but that's probably not true. Uh, that's probably a large part of it, but there are some other things too. And those other things we tend to know less about, but we have to, um, uh, we have to um, conclude that there are uh, psychological and sociocultural influences on sexual orientation, in, as, in, uh, in addition to biological uh, uh, influences. The other thing, too, is that male and female homosexuality seem to develop by different paths. And much of what we know or think we know about uh, development of sexual orientation uh, has to do with um, straight people and uh, gay men. Uh, we don't know as much about um, lesbians. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Um, uh, 
Um, I mentioned already that, um, yeah, some of those differences. All right, um, let me stop there.